rock in the pond and those ripples sort of make their way out? Well, the Reformation was like throwing a 5,000-pound boulder into the pond. This was not a pebble. This was a revolutionary activity. This, this was, had such an impact that the ripples of the Reformation go far into things that we've never thought about. One of the core elements, one of the core, uh, d- core points of the Reformation is the simple fact that the Scripture, the Bible, is to be the center of everything we do and talk about. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is not a quote from a reformer. It is a quote from the original reformer, the Apostle Paul, from 2 Timothy chapter 3, as he is writing to Timothy and describing how the future goes, what happens, what, what the world should look like as he begins to teach that next generation. He said, look, you need to base everything on the text, on the scriptures. And so that's where the first century started with this discussion. Everything is founded in the scriptures. Everything, doctrine, reproof, instruction in righteousness. Everything is to be founded in the scriptures. First century, that's where it was. And as it moved forward from the first century, as things began to change and move away from that that initial things, they lost complete contact with it. Within the first couple of hundred years, it starts to drift and they start to depend more and more on the local bishops and on the local leaders to explain things to them. And the idea that an individual might understand the scriptures and read them begins to drift. Now you understand that you went from Judaism where every child was taught the scriptures. They were taught from, from very, very early life. Even the young ladies were taught the initial five books of the Bible. Even the young ladies were given some involvement in the understanding and reading of the Scripture. But every young man was taught to read and memorize the first five books of the Bible. And if they showed any kind of adequacy in learning, they were then taken on to deeper portions of the Scriptures. And they were taught more about it and taught more things. And they were to, again, begin to understand and memorize more Scripture. Every single service in the synagogue centered around reading of the text. They would bring, bring the, the Torah, the rolls of the Torah in each synagogue, and they would carry it around the synagogue. It's still done today. They would walk around the exter, ex, exterior of the, of the group and down the middle of the group. And uh, pause for just a second. This is a male-dominated society. These were the men sitting on the main floor. Ladies were off in a wing or up above. And that's why you have this, let your women keep silent in church discussion, because the women were discussing something else, and the men were discussing the text. They didn't want the conversation of the women interfering with the men and they certainly didn't want the women commenting on what the men were doing. So just, we'll just put that out there. So think men in the middle of the, of, the, of the sanctuary, people going around and what would happen is they would kiss their hand and touch the text as it went by. Kiss their hand and touch the scroll. Kiss their hand and touch the scroll. It was, it was highly elevated opinion of the text and the reading of the text was the central activity of the synagogue day after day after day after day. This is what the New Testament church inherited. And so when the Apostle Paul says, hey, Scripture is very, very significant, very important. Everybody in Judaism knew exactly what he was saying, understood what he was talking about. However, when you move from Judaism into the rest of the Roman world, it was very hard to keep that elevation of the text 
at the level that it had been in the synagogue. As soon as Christianity departed from the synagogues, get that, as soon as Christianity departed from the synagogues, they departed from the rolled scroll and the march around the, sanctuary, around the synagogue and that opportunity to touch and be blessed by and remember it. And as they did so, it was much more difficult for them to keep track of the text. Okay? Very, very difficult. It became more difficult as you added the New Testament to it and as you began to, to see the expense of these things. As many, many thousands of people flooded into Christianity, it became very difficult to keep enough educated leaders in, the, in those various groups <clears throat> to hold the value of the text up high. And so the value of the text diminishes and the value of the priesthood rises up. And by the third century, the bishops and the leaders of the church have shifted over to stop just being leaders of a group of believers to being priests who define what God has for you. This is one of the crippling factors of the modern church, by the way. One of the most crippling factors of the modern church is that we have Bibles, but we don't read them. One of the most crippling factors of, the, of modern Christianity is the low readership of the text. Because we now have become dependent on pastors to interpret the text for us like the first century became dependent on the priest. Because you expect the pastor to tell you what the text says, which is their role, but their role is a supportive one to your reading and to your personal understanding and to your personal spiritual development. When we come and gather from week to week to worship, we're supposed to come with a full tank, not an empty one. When we come together from week to week to worship, we're supposed to come with a full tank, not an empty one. I hear people say this at church and about church. I came to church to be filled up. No, 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 no. You're supposed to come to church to pour out of what you're already filled with. We come to church to pour out in worship the blessings that God has given us in the week we've just come through. As we've read the text and walked with God and experienced what it means to, to stand before others in the presence of God and bring peace into the world where we live and work and have our activity. The New Testament church went from that very powerful connection with the scriptures to begin to drift. And when in the, third, in the, when in the fourth century, the early first, fourth century, in the 300s, when the, <clears throat> excuse me, when the empire converts to Christianity, they were awash in people who did not understand the text or believe what they had learned or believe what they were centered on. And they began to drift even further. As this is all going on in the church, outside the church, the Romans have an existential crisis. Do you know what an existential crisis means? It's a crisis that attacks your very existence. The existence of the Roman, Roman governmental style, the, the, the Roman uh, community, the Roman leadership, the Roman empire was being attacked from a bunch of crazy Germans coming off the Ural Plain. And I can say crazy Germans because I am one. The, the, the Germanic tribes coming off the Euro plain were coming down into the Roman uh, territories, snatching up pieces of territory and fighting against the legions. And this would not stop. It would continue on for hundreds of years until those 
crazy tribes really controlled most of Europe and the Roman authority diminishes and diminishes and finally disappears into the church's authority. In 321, the emperor who sees this coming moves the headquarters of Rome from the city of Rome. I know this is going to be history and geography a little bit. Well, just stay with me. There's a point to be made. He leaves the city of Rome and transfers himself out to a distant land, Constantinople, named after himself. His name was Constantine. He goes off to Constantinople onto a peninsula where he could protect himself from these crazy people who are coming in. Rome keeps being sacked by these crazy Germans, and so he has to find some place where he can protect himself. So he goes out onto a peninsula. You know a peninsula is a piece of land surrounded by water? And therefore he could protect himself more easily and he set up battlements down that peninsula and built a city on the end at the, at the harbor. He put a chain across the harbor so that a ship sailing into the harbor could, be, could run into the chain that they could crank up at a moment's notice and destroy the wooden ships that were coming into the harbor and protect themselves from landings from sea. This place stood strong against all comers until attacked from within by some Christians uh, in about the, the, the 12th century. Here's what you need to understand. Is that in departing to Constantinople, he basically ceded the control of Europe and the control of the church. He ceded the control of Europe to all those barbarian tribes he had to now sort of negotiate with. And he seceded the control of the church to the bishop of Rome. There were five bishops at the time. He picked the one who was in Rome and said, you will be the leader of all bishops. You'll be called the Papa. And that's where we got the initial name of the Pope. That's where we got the initial standard for one leader of of the Catholic Christian church. Catholic simply means the united, the whole. It's, they represented everybody. Okay? So I want you to understand that as the church gets its start, gets its move forward, these political elements are influencing it. These, these wars and cultural elements are influencing it. And at the same time, the church growth, the very factor that the church is exponentially growing, is causing a drift away from the centrality of the text. Okay? Anybody want to just shoot yourself now and say, oh, no, I've wandered into a theology class. Good, good. Okay, so we've kept you for the first five minutes. All right, so here's the deal. Once that began to happen, the drift just kept going. It just kept sliding away. You see, those, those barbaric tribes, the Germanic tribes, wanted nothing to do with Rome or Greek Greece and their order of things. And so they drifted away from the understandings and teachings and knowledge of the Greeks and the Romans. And so they had enough, they wanted to get away from those things. So as they stay, as they move further out into the central, intercentral and northern Europe, there was less and less contact and interest in Rome. So they lost not only the Roman leadership, but the Roman educational structures and the other things that would have allowed them to continue to grow and learn that the, that the young men were taught Latin so they could read the Bible, that the young men would be able to, even, a, even a, simple, uh, a simple servant could learn to read. Those were all parts of what was going on in Rome, and they were lost on these Germanic tribes. So now you have an illiterate populace that has drifted a long way from Scripture, and now the dependence and the supremacy of the local priest and the cardinals and the bishops and all of the others in the church hierarchy becomes much more important because the only connection you have with understanding how to follow God is these people. You got it? 
You see, this was not some uh, grand scheme thought out on the ground. It was something that was happening as the, the development of the local culture and the religion was going on. Now, whether there was a grand scheme going behind the, on behind the scenes and with Satan's leadership, <clears throat> I'm almost certain that that was happening. <clears throat> but no one sat back. <clears throat> excuse me. No one sat back in about 200 and say, I know what we could do on how we can get this thing all squared away and then started, a, started implementing this thing that would eventually become the mess that it was by the Middle Ages. As the centrality and importance of the local priests rise, as the centrality and importance of the cardinals and the bishops rise, the, the poverty and extremity of the average peasant goes into the, into the absolute garbage pail. They had come in here as conquerors and now their leaders owned all the land and they were basically peasant slaves to the land. They were actually owned by the landowner as a part of the land. They had the freedom to leave, but where would they go? The land was owned by other people like this guy. There were those who would find their way into what we might call some sort of a middle class understanding, but generally no. Generally, you you were born as a peasant and you worked the land and you died as a peasant and you never probably left the territory of that castle's reign, that that moment in time. Their lives became very, very bitter, very harsh, very difficult. And their only protector was this leader, this one who owned all the land. So you can see the, the struggle. Into that moment are born several layers of church reformers. People start coming into the church. And one of the interesting things that happens with power, have you ever heard the term power corrupts? Well, it doesn't just corrupt out there in the political realm or out there in the work realm. It corrupts in the church as well. And as the power and importance of these leaders, these church leaders, ecclesiastical leaders grew, the corruption within the church grew deeply, deeply, deeply. It began to really become an oppressive place where they were the haves and the have-nots. It's why when the French Revolution came, they not only attacked the leadership of the king, they attacked the leadership of the church. Because the peasants had nothing, the church leaders and the royal leaders had everything, and so the, the rebellion was against both. As the church leadership became more and more distant from the people, they began to live the life that the, that the, the emperors and the kings lived. A, a life in, in a lot of places at these upper levels, cardinals, cardinals and above, was quite a, a life of, of debauchery in large part. Things you can't imagine. Um, along come some of these reformers. One of them is a guy named Erasmus. His first name is unpronounceable to me. Uh, you can look it up. Along came someone who, named Erasmus. Erasmus is one of these early reformers. Erasmus was the son, the legitimate son of a priest. Do you see what's wrong with that? You see, the priests were supposed to be celibate. So either this is a miraculous virgin birth or something uncelibate was going on. You can decide for yourself. <clears throat> but the church had drifted in such a way that the, the, the leadership in large part now, I'm saying in large part because I'm, I'm casting a big blanket over, a, uh, over 500 years of history that obviously has its exceptions. But the church in large part had become a horrible place that did not have the interests of the local person. The exception was largely the local priest in the village 
who saw the hard scrabble life of the person who was coming into the church and had compassion for them. They were often ignorant. Some of them didn't even know much of the Bible at all, but they were compassionate in large part and cared about the people they served. Into that steps John Wycliffe and John Huss and Erasmus, even and in Sir Thomas More in, in his own way. Each of these men of great personal rectitude, great personal commitment to God, And you know what they each had in common? They had gone back to the discovery of the centrality of the Bible. I keep saying this because, man, I wish we were there. We we keep it as central to our teachings in the church, but it needs to be central to our personal walk. Scripture needs to be central to our daily walk. It is the source. It is the source of your connection with God. Being in the presence of God in the scriptures day after day after day, that is what is going to grow you and make you a disciple and a follower of Christ. It is the place where God pulls back the curtains and shows you his heart and shows you his walk and shows you what kind of, what kind of God you serve. I really want to implore you to step into the scriptures and see them for yourselves and value them. It's so easy to devalue something that we don't, that we, it doesn't cost us a great deal. Maybe if the Bible still costs $500 a copy, we would be more serious about our reading. But man, it's a precious thing that you carry around. I want to really strongly encourage you. If you want to get back to what the Reformation did, the Reformation's first thing was open the Bible and read what it actually says. That's what set everything going. Why did they want to destroy Wycliffe? Why did they want to kill him? Main thing he, well, one of the main things he did was he translated the Bible into the common English. It was a horrible thing to do back then. What, what, was, what was one of John Huss's major, major mistakes? He translated the Bible into the Czech language. What was, the, what was the, one of the big mistakes for Luther? He translated the Bible into the German language. You see, the church had gotten used to having a grip on the understanding of who God was. And if you let everybody read the Bible, what happens to your grip? It's the same thing that was going on in the first century as Jesus challenged the first century uh, religious organizations. They were used to having a grip on the, on, the, on the descriptions of how things worked, of how God spoke, of what God meant. Even though the text was available to everyone, the, the Pharisees were used to having a grip on the explanation of that text. The priests were used to having a grip on the explanation of that text. And as a result, when Jesus said, no, everybody gets to look, everybody gets to understand, everybody gets to decide, it loosened that grip and nobody wanted to let go. So into all of this we arrive. And this giant boulder the size of a 65 Buick falls into the pond and the ripples fly out like waves away from it. If you're too young to see a 65 Buick, go to your local junkyard. Some of the things that you take for granted were revolutionary at the time. The core idea that the access to the Bible was for everyone was like, whoa, no, we can't give it to everyone. If you give a Bible to everyone, then they're going to read it. And then they're going to come up with their own ideas. And you know what that's going to do to the church? Well, yeah, we know what it's going to do to the church. Look at it. There are as many opinions on the scripture as there are people who go to church. Right? You know what I like about that? God's in charge of straightening that mess out, not me. 
that the church is not a potato, it's a salad. And it never would be. You can't, you can't put those ideas back away. You can't, you can't put Jack back in that box once he's out. That there is value in the individual. Now, you may not think this is, is a, a, a revolutionary idea, but understand that prior to the Reformation, the idea that the individual had value was completely lost. I know when you read the Bible, it's clear that it's there in the text, but remember, they lost the text. And so the idea that these serfs out there living and dying on the land had really mattered at all, ah, very few people thought they mattered much at all. The value of an individual and the individual's thinking and rights and opinions, nah, nobody cared. Nobody cared. It's why they could buy and sell each other with all kinds of, of, of dis, disproportionate grace. They thought they were cool about this. It was everything. God didn't mind. Yeah, buying and selling. It's in the Bible. Slaves are sold and bought all the time. They were literally buying and selling their, the, each other. It was not a big deal to treat a person like a commodity. It was not a big deal. That's why in some places in the world it's still not a big deal because the idea of an individual having value is not there. The expectation of a voice in government. Because once you say the individual has value and the individual's ideas mean something, then that individual has something to add even to the government. So now you can see how it starts to affect the kings. It starts to affect the, the leaders those people running their little fiefdoms, now they've got an informed peasantry. And you know one of the first responses to the Lutheran, uh, the Lutheran Reformation is a peasant revolt in Germany? Because the peasants said, hey, I have value to God. You guys got to listen to me. What's interesting about this is Luther didn't go along with the peasant revolt at all. In fact, he, he supported the kings and the leaders and the, the local princes in putting down the revolt and killing off the peasants who were revolting. So Luther may have been reforming in the way he thought about church, but he had not in any way reformed in the way he thought about government and culture and life. But the people reading the Bible could start to see these differences. They let this Pandora's box open and things started to go wild for them. The belief that the world is worth redeeming. This isn't a Lutheran idea, by the way. Luther doesn't come to this idea. Luther thought the world was such a mess you couldn't redeem it. But the idea that the world was worth redeeming, John Calvin comes along and as he starts reading the scripture and as he starts reading about what the church is supposed to be doing, he says, man, the world is not only worth redeeming, we're supposed to be redeeming it. Let's get on with the business. Let's, let's redeem and restore the world. Now that meant for him every element of it. He got very involved in the, in the political running of the world because he figured, hey, politics needs to be reformed. Let's build a place. So Calvin's Geneva comes out of the idea that a believer has, an, has a value. That value is not only significant to God, but it's significant to the people in power. And he began to push back against those things and began to say, hey, the world should be run in a different way. The whole idea of doing evangelism is born out of that idea right there. The individual has value. If the individual has value, then the world is worth redeeming because the value of the individual is worth redeeming. Modern science comes out of a, reforms, a reformation idea. The idea that God could be understood. The idea that the creation could be understood by man, because God worked in logical ways to reveal himself even in the earth and the sky. Do you, you remember that text? Can you imagine coming to that text for the first time and going, whoa, 
You mean God's trying to explain something in the sky and in the earth? That means I can actually understand it. That means I should look into it. That means I should study it. And can you see how that breeds modern science? Now, science has gone off on its way away from God, but you understand that the core idea that you could understand, that you could, you could really discover God in the text, or not in the text, but in the earth and in the sky, was revolutionary again. It begins to blow out the walls of the thinking of the times. Continuing on, capitalism. Now, capitalism, we all think of capitalism as a, just sort of its... Uh, uh, in modern times, and particularly in the West where capitalism has done the most good, we have kind of thrown capitalism on the fire. We've kind of said, oh, it's a horrible thing, capitalism. But no, capitalism comes out of the idea of the primacy and value of work. That the individual has work, worth, that the ideas of the individual has worth. Uh, maybe I just read it. But on the idea that the work of the individual has worth and is valued as a reflection of his service to God and others, no matter how simple the job is the foundation of the capitalist idea and the capitalist revolution. This whole concept was coming out of these people. My grandfather used to say, any job worth doing is worth doing right. That is a concept that is a capitalist reformation sort of an idea. Any job worth doing. That means whether you're holding a shovel or whether you're writing the Magna Carta, any job, no matter how important that job looks to others, any job worth doing. In other words, if you're going to do a job, it's worth doing it right. If you're not willing to do it right, don't do it. It's not worth your doing. Any job worth doing is worth doing that. The whole concept that, that, that the primacy of an individual's value and work raises this concept and births this idea of capitalists. Capitalism. You sit here in this glorious land we live in under all the freedoms we have, in large part because of the Reformation. Crazy, huh? Because of the things that happened through Calvin and Zwingli and Luther and on and on through the Reformers who would grow out of it. That is what has taken us to where the ripples across our society, the ripples across our world, still flow to the edges. They still impact the edges of the shore. And if you look across the world, and I'm going to make another sweeping, sweeping statement. So if you look across the world where Protestantism took root, The value of the individual is higher. The likelihood of the value of work is higher. The likelihood of the, the individual's impact on government is higher. If you look around the world, just sweep across the world, you will see that is the norm that follows Protestant Reformation wherever it goes. That is normative when you look at the way the Protestant Reformation impacts the cultures it's connected to. Not that it has, not that it's without blemish. And if we have time, we might actually get to some comment on that. Oh man, we don't have much time. This is a quick chart. This is not it all everybody. This is a quick overview of the way the church kind of became what it is today. Up there on the top, you can see Jewish believers that continues on to the present. You can see that first split off the Assyrian Orthodox Church from the initial Christian uh, church, and it continues to, on to today. You can see the Oriental Orthodox Churches, that's Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, split off. You can just see those kind of trailing out there. Eastern Orthodox, you can see the splits in there, 1054. You had some interesting things going on around then, where you had uh, this, these, these, 
various different organizations saying, we don't buy what the church is teaching, now we're going to do our own thing. And they split off on various issues. One of the interesting things, if you read the, 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 uh, the sort of the uh, constitutional rec- uh, declaration about why they were leaving the Greek, in the Greek Orthodox movement, one of the interesting things that's in that list of reasons why we're leaving is Sabbath Mass, Saturday Mass. Even as late as 900 when they were having these discussions, they were discussing whether or not they could still do Saturday Mass. And they, they said one of the reasons they need to leave is because you're, you're not allowing us to do Saturday Mass. So we're splitting off and doing our own thing. Those things have continued on today. Roman Catholicism starting back in there and that you, you really have to start it around, four to, around 321 and then kind of move its way forward. It's clearly not in, all, in any kind of great authority until down into the eight nine hundreds. But its power and authority continue all the way until today. If you look down around the, around 1540s, there's an Anglican split off. You remember what happened there? King Henry wanted a divorce. Do you remember any of this stuff from high school? Maybe college? This should have gone... Somebody should have covered this for you. Okay? King Henry wanted a divorce. He split off the, with them the church because the, the Pope wouldn't give him the authority to get a divorce. So he started his own branch of the church since everybody else was at it. You know, there was a bunch of reformers starting their branches of the church. So he said, hey, we'll start, I'll start my own branch. I'll give myself authority to get my divorce, which he then did several times after that. Being Henry's wife was a really dangerous thing for several generations or for several decades. He splits off in the Anglican church is that next, next branch that you see. As you look down, you're going to see Methodism split off from the Anglican church. And let's see if we can zoom in. You can see where the Methodists split off from the Anglican church. And now you're going to start to see the kind of reformation you're accustomed to. Now you're going to start to see the kind of Protestantism that you're aware of. So you can see with that split off, you have the Af- African Methodist uh, Episcopal Church, Salvation Army, the Christian Missionary Alliance, and the Church of the Nazarene all come out of that Methodist root. Seventh-day Adventism has a strong Methodist Route. You know why? Because the, the, some of the founders were strong Methodists. So we have a lot of Methodism in our, in our history and in our, in our background. If you look down there, 1517 has a line going straight down. It's called the Protestant Reformation at that point. And as you work your way down, um, you kind of come down to, they, ca- they come down and connect the Baptists. I wanted to show you this one because in this particular chart, you see the Seventh-day Adventist Church branching off in 1844 from the Baptist movement. Why would that be? Because they were mostly coming from what's known as the Millerite movement. And William Miller was a Baptist preacher. And so you've got a whole conglomeration, actually, of several Protestant churches that start the Adventist church. But our most direct connection is probably Methodism and the Baptist church. So however you want to define it, that's kind of your edge of the branch if you're here this morning. You're down there off the Baptist branch, which is off the Reformation branch, which kicks out into the Adventist Church and the Church of Christ and the continuing Baptist churches. And if you look at the bottom line down there, you'll see some churches you know as well, the Southern Baptists, the National Baptists, the American Baptists. You can see now the Congregational Churches, um, the Calvinist Reformed Church, the Lutheran Church, the Anabaptist Church are all coming down this line. Any of that sound familiar? Eh, okay. What you need to understand about Protestantism is you opened Pandora's box, you gave all these people Bibles, and they started making different ideas or understanding different things about what they were reading. And so they started a group here and started a group there and started a group here and started a group there. And as they were moving along, people said, hey, you can't do that. And they said, yes, we can. It says right here in the Bible. The Anabaptists came along because they said, hey, we should baptize people by immersion. And the early Protestants said, no, 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 we still do sprinkling. That's what you're supposed to do. And they said, no, 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 the Bible says you're supposed to dunk them. It's right here, the word. The word Baptist means to dunk. Dunkin' Donuts should actually be called Baptist Donuts. Because that's what it means, to dunk somebody. 
And so the Anabaptists came along and they said, here's what we're about. So we're in. And so they read it in the text. They proved it in the text. And on we go. These guys would die at the stake, these early reformers, with one word on their lips. Prove to me in Scripture where I am wrong and I will recant. Because they knew they couldn't. They knew they couldn't. And so the primacy of Scripture was carrying them forward, even to face fires. When they, when they started building the fire for Huss, for John Huss, they actually built the straw and sticks up to his neck the whole time asking him to recant. And again, with this pile being built around him, Huss said, prove to me in Scripture where I'm wrong and I'll happily recant. And he's basically saying to the audience, go read the text. You go read the text for yourself. You go read the text for yourself. And people keep reading the text for themselves and splitting off into groups. I think the the worst thing of the Protestant Reformation is that we can't get along. The best thing in the Protestant Reformation is that there are billions of Bibles on the planet today. That back in the 1880s and 90s, we began to develop what are known as the Bible societies. And they said, you know what changes the world is the Bible. And if we can get that into everybody's hands, man, we will have done something. Hmm. Preacher has too much to say. Let me see if I can get to an end. Because the end that I was planning on getting to is going to take me another 30 minutes. Maybe 20. So, I've read the Bible. I read the book of Revelation. Revelation has this picture. It it describes what I just explained to you. The church, the the birth of Christianity as, as the apostles held hands with Jesus was as pure a revelation of God as could be. And when they had to let go of the hand of Jesus, when Jesus went back to the Father, it immediately began to decline away from that perfect representation of God. The apostolic church was awesome. It was really good. And if you, if you read the book of Revelation and you read about the church of Ephesus, it's describing that apostolic time. It's Revelation 2 and 3 that covers these seven churches. You read about the church of Ephesus and says, hey, you guys are doing really well. You're, you're staying strict to what you're doing, but go back to what you learned. Go back to your first love. Who was the first love? Who did they hold hands with at the beginning of this whole thing? It was Jesus. Go back to Jesus. You guys are drifting from Jesus already. And if you watch what it's doing, it's describing a decline of the church away from the connection that it had with God until you get to the bottom at Thyatira. You get to the bottom and it says, you guys have gone so far away, you've actually invited Jezebel into your church. You're actually letting Jezebel preach. Now, if you don't know the story of Jezebel, it's the story of one of the wives, well, the wife of Ahab, the king of the northern tribes, who led the people of Israel away from God into the worship of Baal. And he says, basically, you've you've let somebody start to teach, to lead this group who is leading you away from God into, worship, into the worship of something that is completely not God. The next church in these time periods that are being described is the Church of the Reformation. Now I want you to compare quickly the, the two ideas. In the church that's being described as the worst one, it says, I know your works. I know your works, your love and your patience. And the last is greater than the former. In the midst of the worst of times in church leadership, people in the church 
could not be blamed for the debauchery of their leaders. And he calls them out saying, your patience is awesome. And then he says, I will put no more on you. I know your situation. You can't read. You're barely living to 45 or 50. You work every day in the fields, rolling rocks out of someone else's field, planting their grain and taking care. And you you have no access. So I'm not putting any of this on you. Your church is a mess, but I'm not putting it on you. And then you go to the second, to the next church, the Church of the Reformers, and there's really no compliment given to them. He says nothing nice about them. He says, you have a name that you should be good, but you're not. You see, what happened with the reform is they they began to change things. And as soon as they started to reform and make good steps, positive steps, and there were positive steps, they immediately went back to the ways of doing church that they had always known. They persecuted each other. You know what they would do to an Anabaptist? The other Protestants would do to an Anabaptist. You want to be dunked? So they would tie a rock around you and throw you into the river. We'll give you permanent baptism, buddy. They would actually kill each other. They started many, many holy wars over who was going to control territory. Was it going to be this group of Protestants or that group of Protestants or this group of Catholics? And war after war after war. Jesus' church starts finding its way back to Jesus. And what does it do? It fragments into a bunch of warring tribalism. It's crazy. But out of those crazy tribes, things kept going. Things kept changing. And if you were still reading Revelation, you'd see the next church is Philadelphia. And nothing bad is said about this church. It's the church represented after, the, after really the idea of ecclesiastical and political authority. is the, the idea is broken. And the church becomes freed of politics. And then it goes crazy. Missionaries sent to the four corners of the earth. The missionary societies, the, the Bible societies, children's education societies, Sunday schools, and, and in our branch, Sabbath schools, begin to bloom all over the world. And for the next hundred years, the church does a great deal more than it had done for the previous thousand to reach the world with the message of Jesus. And the story of the grace and love of Christ spread over the planet till today. It has rippled to the edges of this planet and billions worship Christ. We shouldn't exalt the reformers in any way as perfect any more than we should exalt the founders of our own church in any way as perfect. They were all just like us, flawed and broken. But we should really understand the value of who they were and the courage it took to stand where they stood. Sam, can you give me my, to my last slide? Each of us is a reformer in our own birthright. Each of us is a reformer in our own birthright. You have the text. 
you are called upon by God, led by the Holy Spirit, to read and understand what he's trying to do in your personal walk. What in your life is being reformed? What is he calling you to? What relationships should you be having? How should your walk with Jesus be improving? And ultimately, are you doing what Jesus asked you to do? You see, the church is not me, and the church is not these walls. The church is you and me. The church is all of us. This is not a message for pastors. This is not a message for ecclesiastical leaders. This is not a message for those guys over there in any way. It is always and always has been a message for me in my seat in my mirror. The last thing Jesus says to the church, you and I, the church, the last thing Jesus says to all of us is, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Learn, study, discover the scripture, discover what God is saying, and go tell someone else. Yeah, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Joining a fellowship. They need to be in fellowship. If church, if, if the Protestant Reformation says anything, it says that Christians need to be in fellowship. Because every time they branch off into something else, they gather a group around them. You don't ever see a branch take off and have one person in it. It always is a branch that gathers fellowship and gathers growth and support. Baptizing them into the fellowship. Teaching them everything that I have taught you. Christianity has always been a relationship between me and God. That's why Protestantism looks like a big pile of spaghetti instead of a nice marching order of ants. Because in all that pile is a revelation of who Jesus is that's so personal that each of us is a little different. The call upon all of our lives is to multiply disciples who glorify God. The Bible and the Bible alone. Christ and Christ alone. Saved by grace alone through faith alone to the glory of God alone. That's the challenge. That's the call. That's the root of who we are as believers in the Protestantism that we talk about. We forget our history to our own detriment. But I think we are called and challenged by that history to stand courageously for God no matter where we are. Boardroom, backroom, or bathroom mirror. To stand. Let's pray. Father God, there's a lot to be said so much about what you've done. Amazingly, you took a bunch of human beings and had this kind of impact on the world. Father, we ask for your spirit to be our guide and our leader. We are aware that standing before us is a cloud of witnesses, deep and strong, that did not end with John the, the Revelator, but carried on for centuries. Waldenses, Huguenots, Hussites, 
Lutherans and Calvinists, reformers of every stripe, who heard your call, heeded it, come what may. Lord, give us the courage of those who have gone before. Help us to trust you like they did. To read and value scripture the way they did. To value Jesus supremely. And to always point to our Father in glory. In your name, amen.